You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist humanist podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. And on today's episode, we're going to be talking about a new piece that Andrew just wrote called On What Grounds Should We Defend Liberal Democracy? It is a very interesting piece, and we're going to have a very interesting discussion about it. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. Today is Wednesday, February 2nd, and we are going to be talking about book banning, which is all the rage in the United States right now. I thought I'd lead off with a few paragraphs from a New York Times piece from January 30th that outlines some of the uh, politics of what's going on right now in the U.S. <clears throat> the piece is by Elizabeth A. Harris and Alexandra Alter, and it starts off, in Wyoming, a county prosecutor's office considered charges against library employees for stocking books like Sex is a Funny Word and This Book is Gay. In Oklahoma, a bill was introduced in the state Senate that would prohibit public school libraries from keeping books on hand that focus on sexual activity, sexual identity, or gender identity. In Tennessee, the McMinn County Board of Education voted to remove the Pulitzer Prize-winning graphic number Mouse from an eighth-grade module on the Holocaust. Parents, activists, school board officials, and lawmakers around the country are challenging books at a pace not seen in decades. The American Library Association said in a preliminary report that it received an unprecedented 330 reports of book challenges, each of which can include multiple books, last fall. Such challenges have long been a staple of school board meetings, but it, it isn't just their frequency that has changed. According to educators, librarians, and free speech advocates, it is also the tactics behind them and the venues where they play out. Conservative groups in particular, fueled by social media, are now pushing the challenges in state houses, law enforcement, and political races. So we're going to be talking about the new rage, the new trend of conservatives banning books in the U.S. Not, not a new trend, but the new resurgence of this in our current event section today. Andrew, you also were telling me before we were recording today that uh, you just finished reading a piece in Yahoo News. It's an interview with Emily Knox, who is an associate professor in the School of Information Sciences at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. She offers a lot of insight, I thought, into what's going on with the recent surge book censorship and why it's taking place. I thought it was very interesting. So we'll provide the link to, to the article. And I, I definitely recommend that people check that out. I thought, you know, here's somebody who's got something to say. Yeah, it came out yesterday, February 1. It's called Expert. Here's what's behind the recent surge in book censorship attempts. She's asked a, a question about why so much, so much of this book banning concentrates on books about racism, you know, or race or something. The interviewer says this uh, Pulitzer Prize winning historian Annette Gordon-Reed, she tweeted book banning people, quote, don't want their kids to, to empathize with black characters. They know their kids will do this instinctively. They don't want to give them the opportunity to do that. And Emily Knox, who's, you know, being interviewed here says, well, yeah, that's partly the case, but it's more complicated than that. She says, let's think about what happened after George Floyd was murdered. Have all these protests around the country, including in little places that are like almost all white, who was at these protests? A lot of it's like kids. And she says, I think that actually made people very nervous. Where had their children learned about this? You know, so, so George Floyd's murder and, and what made them feel that like they, they could protest this murder? How did they decide to do this? Did they learn this in a book? Did they learn it at school? This wasn't something we taught them at home. So, you know, a lot of it's about parents feeling like they've lost control over their kids, that their kids are different from them, have different politics, and they, they want to reassert control. So she says, I actually think it's not always that they don't want to read about black people or they don't want the books to be about black people. It's not that. It's what what's said about black people. Quote, there are only certain stories that conservatives want to be told when you look you know, at these book challenges. 
often they're bootstrapping, overcoming adversity stories. That's what they want, as opposed to naturalistic, realistic fictional stories about the everyday lives of marginalized people. Okay, so so they these people say this uh, all the time them, themselves when they say we don't want critical race theory. We want to understand racism to be what it what it's not, which is individualized acts of prejudice. So what we should foreground is the people who've overcome the irrational hatred of other people and have made a success of themselves. We don't want to hear about the real deal of a racist society where racism is a system and this is the lived experience and it has been for hundreds of years of, of millions upon millions of people. So it's really uh, about an attempt to make sure that the, the right-wing line on race and racism is pushed to the, the max and, and anything critical of that is so-called critical race theory and needs to be kept away from us because that might p- keep people away from protests over the George Floyd murder. I still follow the local politics of my old hometown in rural Indiana where I grew up, um, which is a extremely Trump-heavy county. I think Trump uh, won the election in 2016 and 2020 there by like 90% or something, right? And it's always been like that. I read the minutes from the school board meetings still and kind of follow the politics. And if there's any place that is a safe space for super Trumpy, fascist, Christian, white people, it is my hometown, all right? Like, there is nothing in your growing up in that town that's going to, like, make you challenge your worldview or have to think about homosexuality or feminism or racism or anything. Like, if you want your kid to grow up Christian or racist, this is a great, super safe place for them. So it's, like, comically absurd to read the school board meeting minutes and see this parent committee pouring through the textbooks, trying to find the uh, some kind of glimmer of critical race theory these paranoid teachers and parents going through all of the curriculum with a fine-tooth comb and showing up the school board meetings saying aha you know i got you i found this thing and then the school board says well no that's has nothing to do with critical race theory and we don't teach critical race theory in this county and no one teaches critical race theory anywhere in the k-12 curriculum in the united states but it, it and it's absurd and comical because it's like a it's like a witch hunt like any rational person would know that there's nothing for them to find yet month after month they come back to the school board meeting grasping at straws trying to find something. So there must be something more to it than just like a goal that they're trying to achieve this like perfectly whitewashed curriculum because they already have that and they've had that for decades and decades. I think it's more that this witch hunt serves a like a performative need. This rabid base, this fascist base, this Trumpist base is fired up and they're bloodthirsty and they want something to like dig their teeth into and do that makes them feel like they're doing something for the cause of white nationalism in America. And so they're sent on these like fool's errands, obsessing over these ridiculous things that are, that are chasing windmills and such. And that, but that serves like a political purpose in a fascist movement that people, you know, the base needs to be fired up and doing these like performative rituals of purging society of impurity. It reminds me very much of, you know, the role of book burning in Nazi Germany. Where, you know, obviously like the Nazi government had a very top-down, centralized control over curriculum. And they had government committees that had to create textbooks and approve textbooks and censure material. But that wasn't like adequate enough. There was also this need to have these rituals of book burning where people... You know, students brought books to public squares and burned hundreds of books in these big ceremonies with, you know, torches. That was like an important part of the censorship in Nazi society. It wasn't just enough to do the censorship. It had to be this mass participation where everyone's like, it's sort of like the equivalent of like a public lynching or something. I think I think you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, people are focused on how many challenges are being received and it's way higher, you know, uh, four times 
as much in the first part of uh, this current school year as in the previous school year. Some places in Texas, they would have like one challenge. Now they got 75 and so forth. When you, you talk about that this is a, a political thing, people want to feel like they're doing something and they can fight their narrow-minded, bigoted, right-wing battles. Uh, that's part of it, but there are people egging this on, they're coordinating. Part of what's making this happen now, Emily Knox, among others, is, is saying this, is social media and, and the internet, they're much better able to organize. So people in Texas are all freaked out about what ha is happening, you know, in some place in, in, in Virginia and so forth. And the leaders of this, they're compiling lists of books so that people can easily go into the school library, the public library, whatever, and, and go through and see which of these titles is being carried. And here on page 37, they say this. And here on page 129, they say this. And you, you, you pull those quotes out. You make it look like it's it's a pornographic uh, gay novel or something, right? So uh, they're hawking strategies and they're compiling donor lists, obviously. And, you know, uh, they got people's email addresses. Maybe they got their phone numbers and so forth. And, and they're organizing and, and building very effectively around a concrete issue. You know, the other thing is, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right about what's going on. Nobody actually thinks that they can stop these ideas from getting out there that they're trying to ban they they don't even probably think that they can stop people from reading it there's just way too much online so yeah it, it, it's symbolic it's a way of expressing dominance it, it, it's a way of saying uh jews will not replace us lgbtq people will not replace us black people except for uncle tom's you know, will not replace us. Pe pe people who don't think that there were two sides to the Holocaust will not replace us, right? These are people who see that their country is no longer exclusively their country, and they're determined to keep their image of uh, America uh, dominant, white, Christian, patriarchal. Well, that's all the time we have for this current events section. Up next, we talk about on what grounds we should defend liberal democracy. Uh, on today's podcast, we're going to be discussing an article that Andrew, Andrew Kleiman, uh, wrote last week. It's called, On What Grounds Should We Defend Liberal Democracy? And it's up on the MarxistHumanistInitiative.org website, which we'll link to. Also on the podcast is Angela Clard joining us again. So welcome back, Anne. So, Andrew, your, the title of your piece is phrased as a question, on what grounds should we defend liberal democracy? Now, this question is not new to MHI. We have been arguing that people need to defend liberal democracy against uh, the threats of authoritarianism. Um, but we've also been working on the, the question and, uh, internally and have some uh, writings that were done in 2019 on the topic that um, – have not been published yet, but our sort of internal attempt to work the question out. But um, in this piece, you seem to think that, you know, what we worked out in 2019 wasn't enough. Why? What, what prompted you to write this paper? Well, I mean, I definitely think that we need to think more and say more about liberal democracy, the need to defend it, uh, why we should defend it, because the threat to liberal democracy is the issue of our time in the United States, elsewhere, Hungary, Poland, uh, in India, Brazil, uh, and, and so forth. So what I basically said is, well, look, I have to do something on this. So I, I begin, like I often begin, is looking at what I or we have done to this point. And in this case, it's we, MHI. And so I reviewed our perspectives adopted in 2019 and 2020 on liberal democracy. And my general approach, what I was just trying to do is to say, let me look at what we've got, what's good, what more needs to be said, and so forth. And without any prior intention, I came across a problem that I had 
in our defense of liberal democracy, not the fact that we defend liberal democracy and not the need to differentiate genuine Marxism from like the soft on authoritarian, soft on Trumpist left. That was all really excellent. But the grounds on which we had articulated a defense of liberal democracy seemed to me to be lacking something. We put forward a number of reasons that I'll call pragmatic reasons. You know, it's important to defend liberal democracy because it protects the left, it protects resistance movements, workers, uh, minorities, and so forth, helps to give them then the wherewithal to, to struggle. All, all of that I, I agree with, but I don't think it's sufficient. And so I try to work out and to communicate why I think that that kind of pragmatic defense of liberal democracy isn't enough that what we're talking about are the rights uh, and freedoms of individuals when we talk about liberal democracy. And those rights and freedoms are important, not just as a means to an end, not just as a, a set of things that can help a socialist movement. Those things are good in and for themselves. That is what the struggle is all about. And then I go on in this article to reconnect with Marx's Marxism, what he understood to be the goal of the struggle, that it isn't socialism or communism. It is the full and free development of human power, a society in which what he said in the Communist Manifesto is that instead of the old bourgeois society with its classes and class antagonisms, what we will have is an association in which the free development of each is the condition for the free development of all. And that, that was the goal articulated in the party document, which remains, you know, the party document. So it's, it's so weird to me, actually, like I'm just saying, OK, let me say something more that needs to be said that we hadn't already said. And I'm saying when I look at it now, you know, all of this was said by Raya Dunyevskaya in her book, Marxism and Freedom. I'm, I'm making just the same kind of points because they are the points to make but it, it wasn't like conscious at all yet that's kind of the the result i mean that that was the goal of her book marxism freedom which was to reclaim the original marxism of marx and it had everything to do with the freedom of of the individual andrew i read this document you've written as a profound critique of the left today. As Marxists always say, it's no accident that you're writing about liberal democracy, not only because so many countries are moving towards fascism and eliminating all people's um, civil rights and liberties, but because of the underlying disconnect from Marxist Marxism, as Donevskaya called the problem 50 years ago that still exists within the so-called left. Yes, there is a critique of, of the left here. It was not my intention to do that. You know, I explained what my intention was, but it doesn't mean that the result is not a critique of the left. It, it certainly is. When, when I'm working something out, I'm trying to get it right. And, and so my entire thought process in, in working it out was what is the actual ground on which we should be defending liberal democracy? But yes, there is definitely a, a criticism of the left, and it's because the, the left has got this economistic sense of what the goal is, you know, the goal is uh, the abolition of private property, or the goal is some social democratic welfare state, or whatever it, it might be. The economic transformation of society is hugely important, because only with the profound revolutionizing of the mode of production and the rest of the, 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 the economic structure of society, will human freedom and human rights be able to advance? But what I'm saying now is that the economic aspect is a means to the end, which is the full and free development of each individual. The end, the goal, is that human self-development. The, the left has 
substituted economic measures for the goal, and in in so doing, the actual goal often disappears from view, and of course is made expendable in the service of the the economic stuff. So you, you had all these people for generations saying that the USSR was objectively historically progressive because it had nationalized property and was so-called building socialism and on the road to communism. And meanwhile, the, the masses of people are starving, they're exploited, they're alienated, and they don't have even kind of elementary civil liberties and, and rights that we've had traditionally in places like the, the U.S. and Britain. So you're turning around the traditional sort of uh, that uh, civil rights are only a means to an end to help build the economic revolution that will come one day and then we'll have pie in the sky. You're turning that around and showing that the purpose of the revolution in production is not just to have plenty for all, although that's a big deal, but it's it's really the beginning of an age of human self-development, which people can develop all their talents and become those new human beings that one's always looking for. Yes, I mean, I'm, I'm saying this, but I, I don't really take any credit for it. It's not original. It's all there in Dunyevskaya's Marxism and Freedom and the rest of her body of work. And it's not original with her. She didn't mean it to be. She's trying to reclaim, or she was trying to reclaim the Marxism of Marx. What I'm about to read is not something that's actually in my, in my article, but it's there from the beginning, 1844. Marx's essay on private property and communism. And at at the end of it, Marx writes, he says, communism is the position as the negation of the negation and is hence the actual phase necessary for the next stage of historical development in the process of human emancipation and rehabilitation. Okay, it's an actual phase necessary for the next stage of human emancipation and rehabilitation. Communism, he continues, is the necessary form and the dynamic principle of the immediate future. But communism as such is not the goal of human development, the form of human society. Okay, it said point blank in 1844 in no uncertain terms. Uh, and that's the, the the ground on which we've stood and which I think we uh, need to continue to stand. I could see this being novel and or new or confusing for some listeners to wrap their heads around because often Marxists and other people on the left, when issues of democracy, rights, things like that come up, usually people on the left see it as their job to criticize the inability of capitalism to fully deliver on those things. Often people on the left have this uh, instinct that people who are like advocating for these rights within bourgeois society are advocating for some sort of reformism or gradualism, or that people should be content with, you know, just fighting for, for these things within the confines of bourgeois society. You, you don't, you're not making those sort of arguments here. You're not trying to expose that beyond the limited freedoms of bourgeois society is really like the despotic form of capitalist labor process or that the equality in bourgeois society is like a mask for the real inequality means uh, in the means of production and things like that like you're not making that kind of argument so you know how can people who are used to thinking that way orient them their brains around what you're trying to say how does what you were saying relate to those kind of arguments. Let me first try to uh, disambiguate democracy and liberal democracy and and liberalism or classical liberalism. There has been, as you say, traditionally critique on the left of democracy. And liberal democracy is something different. And the term liberal democracy was not like on everybody's lips not all that long ago. It seems to have evolved because, I mean, the, the term was there, but Fareed Zakaria about 25 years ago says, you know, we got all these new kinds of political forms where, you know, you've got voting and you've got parties and stuff, but, you know, these are strongman dictatorships, you know. Uh, like what we have now in, in, in Hungary and, you know, what the, the, the Trumpites want to uh, make us have here. 
And so he began to call those things illiberal democracies. In other words, the, the, the voting forms and the parties and all that is there. But what we tend to nowadays in the past century associate with democracy, which is individual freedoms, individual rights, the right to free speech, to voting rights, abortion rights, all of those things seem to be a part of what we call democracy, even though they have ab- absolutely nothing to do with the original sense of democracy, which is rule of the majority. So to use the terms that everybody's using, liberal democratic societies are democratic, okay, but not all quote, democratic societies or liberal democratics. I mean, in other words, you can have majority rule formally and political parties formally, but have a very repressive state structure, political system, and so forth. So what I'm concerned about here and what MHI has been concerned about all along is not to defend democracy as such, it's to defend this liberal democracy, okay, liberal democracy. Why? Because it is what is under attack with Trumpism, with Orban in Hungary, uh, Modi in India, and uh, Bolsonaro in, uh, in Brazil, etc. Et so we're facing some concrete problems wherein people are trying to take away voting rights, to kneecap political opponents, uh, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That is the concrete problem we face, and the issue is we have to protect individual rights that have been won. We have to protect individual freedoms, liberties that, that have have been won, and of course we want to extend them. Uh, and then my piece is just about well, what is the ground that we're going to do this on? But 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 that's the issue. So what we are talking about when we talk about liberal democracy, and this is just common usage. It's not the same thing as, as, as democracy. It presupposes democracy, but when one says liberal democracy, you're immediately focusing on the individual rights and the liberties and the guarantee and protection to some extent of these uh, individual rights and liberties. Because we're talking about concrete political institutions and forms, we're also not talking about any kind of political theory or political philosophy like classical liberalism, you know, like the thought that underlies like a lot of people's uh, support for liberal democracy. Their support for liberal democracy has to do with the rights of man and inalienable rights. And I mean, all, all, all of the, these fairy tales, I, I have nothing in common with, with any of that. No, that's just completely incompatible like with anything that, that, that Marx thought of, those classical liberal notions. But, but that's not the issue here. We're not defending some conception, some liberal or classical liberal principles, what what we're trying to do is defend concrete rights, concrete liberties uh, that have been won, and and to extend them to the extent that we can. In this moment in history, that necessarily involves the question of plain old democracy also, because what we're facing is the loss of the right to vote. And at moments in history, just having the right to have the majority decide anything has been extremely radical and revolutionary. Well, your essay, you talk about the Chartists, but I'm thinking more recently of the African revolutions against colonialism that took place over many decades, but came to a head in the 1950s and 60s. And their one man, one vote was a rallying cry for not only getting rid of the colonial powers, who obviously were a small minority in those countries, but for all the freedoms that they were fighting for, which they thought had to begin with or include democratic voting. So I think that's important to note, particularly at this moment in U.S. history. Yeah, I mean, voting rights are incredibly important. It's just you can have a democracy that does not go fully to one person, one vote. What the Africans were demanding is far in advance of even what we have had in the United States, 
where we, we have an electoral college which is not strictly majoritarian. So they, they were in advance of that. I mean, but would you say the United States is not a democracy? You know, you begin to split hairs at that point. So I would say the United States is, is a democracy, but be, you got to be very careful that it does not necessarily mean majority rule at, at every point. And look, the United States was a democracy at a point where only male white property owners could vote, if I'm not mistaken. And slavery yeah, and, existed. And slavery so. existed. So th there are degrees here, w which brings me back to one aspect of the question that Brendan asked that I haven't gotten to that I think is very important. I, I mean, I, there's a lot of the left that has always understood its job to be expose and unmasking uh, of the hypocrisy, blah, blah, blah. And there are two ways to read it. One is just, okay, these people say that they're for freedom and for human rights, and but they're really not, blah, 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 look what's actually going on. Well, yeah, there's two ways to take that. If we were in power, things would be different that way, you know, and there would be genuine human rights and, and, and so forth. Or the other thing that I think is actually going on is a lot of these people do not really support individual rights and individual liberties, regard them as expendable, you know, in the quest for political power and their programs and planned economy and state ownership of the means of production and all, all of that. So, I mean, there there is a lot of the left or what calls itself the left that is not now and has not historically been totally down with this issue of defending and promoting and forwarding human rights and, and civil liberties, individual freedom. In other words, it's um, there's a lot of whataboutism, to, to summarize it that way. But I wouldn't say that there is no critique of liberal democracy in my article. There is one. It's a big chunk of the article. And what I, I'm at pains to argue is that, yes, there are severe limits to which, even in the best case, a liberal democracy protects individual rights and freedoms. But that is because liberal democracy corresponds to, in the best case, capitalism. It's capitalism, you know, is free and open as it can be. There is no capitalist country, no capitalist system that can guarantee that people can exercise their rights, for instance, of speech in the workplace. I mean, you can't, that would, that would be the workers running the workplace instead of doing what they're told. You, you can't, right? It's obvious. There's a limit to how free and what kind of rights people can have in a capitalist society. You can't guarantee people the right to decent housing you know, the right to enough to eat, the right to decent medical care, that cannot be guaranteed, despite what anybody says, in, in, you know, in a capitalist society. So, yes, there are severe limits to this. You, you mentioned this a little bit already, I think, but sometimes the left treats liberal democracy as a means to an end, or treats liberal democracy as moments in the struggle for socialism. And, and you have a critique of that in this paper. Do you think that that's just like inadequate or is there actually something dangerous about this way of treating liberal democracy? I, I don't think that what Marxist humanist initiative has developed up to this point prior to, to my article, I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think it's an inadequacy. What we, we've said is that liberal democracies are more tolerant of dissent and freedom struggles than authoritarian regimes are. And this gives radical movements and independent working class activity more space to self-develop. You know, so that's that's a pragmatic reason. I mean, it's for our own good as you know, revolutionary Marxist humanists to have these democratic rights of dissent and assemble and, and to publish and so forth. The 2019 perspectives document on liberal democracy, for instance, said that freedom struggles have so this is struggles for, you know, democratic rights, struggles for individual freedom. We said that they have several aspects of genuine positive significance. But what was referred to was also, I think, kind of pragmatic through these kinds of struggles that people engage in, you know, uh, for voting rights, for abortion rights, whatever it might be, the contradictions in society get sharpened. 
you know, you know who stands on this side, who stands on the other side, who's your friend, who's your enemy. You begin to see that amid all this, oh, there's all these viewpoints out there. You begin to see that, well, actually, there are really two sides here. Masses get radicalized. You had a huge radicalization when people came out to protest the murder of George Floyd and the, the cops start trying to like beat up all, all kinds of demonstrators, people who hadn't come out to anything ever. You know, and they begin to see that the cops wasn't just a couple of rogue cops in, in, in Minneapolis. It's, it's an entire system. So the systemic thinking is invaluable and, and people begin to really internalize it. That, that's a huge, huge victory. And they self-develop through their struggles. They, they, they get confidence, they get insight, and, and, and you, you can win some actual gains. Those are all really good reasons to support struggles for civil liberties, human rights, individual freedoms. They're all really good reasons, but they're not enough is what I'm saying. Okay, so I don't think we said anything wrong. Just, I think we need to actually go back to Marxist Marxism, what it is about, what it is for, what is the actual goal, you know, and have that uppermost in mind. Now, the, the issue is, what is the means and what is the end? And substituting the means, making them as if they're the end, you know, so so switching means and ends around, that can be hugely dangerous and deleterious. I don't think MHI has done anything wrong. It's just if we say that, that these freedom struggles and, and struggles for rights are moments in the struggle for socialism, that switches it around. That's not good because that puts the goal as a means and that puts the the means the struggle for socialism as the goal and you know it's an it's an i think an innocent mistake on our part but if you look at the whole history of the left and all of its errors and actually all of its horrors as well as i was talking about in the case of stalinism this substitution of, of means for ends is is been completely deleterious and it's incredibly diversionary. You know, you have these people and, you know, they're against oppression and they're against exploitation and they've got a vision of a different future, you know, and they're 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and they come into a movement and, okay, well, what we need is activity. We got to win these uh, struggles. And what does the struggle become? struggle doesn't become it becomes like our, our candidates in the european parliament got two additional seats this time yay you know oh we suffered a loss of three seats in the european parliament i mean this is this is where things go when you so accentuate uh, the means and make it as if those means are are, are, the, are the goal uh and so the, the left is always finding that it's limping from victory to victory, as I put it. You got all these victories that they're winning all the time. And of course, they're always ephemeral. There's nothing really solid. You know, so Syriza was the second coming of Christ or whatever it is. And then where is Syriza in Greece nowadays? And that's just one instance. I mean, but again and again, there's this short termism, this focus on winning not immediate victories. That's not even the problem. The, the, the problem is people begin to think of these things as if they are goals in themselves, you know. Well, what we need is, you know, a socialist state. What we need is ending uh, private property. No, none of this is going to be any good unless it serves the self-development of human beings and increasing freedom and so forth. And you always have to keep your eye on the prize. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Anja Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. 
Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing an all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. Andrew, you said that what you're putting this uh, essay is nothing new because it's all there in uh, Donevskaya's Marxism and Freedom, and it's all there before that in Marx, and that's what she's doing is trying to develop those concepts from Marx in light of what has happened to Marxism. I mean, the, the problematic of her day uh, was arose from the Soviet Union having turned the Russian Revolution into its very opposite and eliminated any freedoms at all. So I want to get back to this issue of Marx being the source. And you, in your essay, you prove this with by taking up a, a few places in Marx where he directly addresses rights and liberties. And I think that's worth going over because the left has completely disregarded those things and treated them as if those just seemed like big deals in his day because he was living in the time of, of kings and uh, nobody had any rights. So he got excited because the Chartists were advocating universal male white suffrage or whatever. But it's not. You're saying they are more. These are more uh, universal rights that are part of the goal of the revolution. So I wonder if you can take us through those points and marks that people seem to ignore these days. It's it's really not any particular point. The idea is that uh, the full and free development of each individual has to be the ruling principle. That is the struggle for human self-development, human freedom, which definitely means individual freedom. That is the goal for Marx. That is what animates everything. So it's there everywhere from beginning to end. It's there actually before Marx says that the proletariat is, you know, the new revolutionary class, the universal class, before that. That's the moment where people 
generally say, you know, that's Marxism. But even before that, he was involved in journalism and he was all out in defending the free press and for promoting a free press. They didn't have it. That's very early on in the early 1840s. In the third volume of Capital, which he never lived to, to publish, near the end, he says that the true realm of freedom is the development of human powers as an end in itself. And probably right around the same time, a few years later, you had this uh, new left unity, you know, new, really, for the first time, social democratic political party. And they had a program, they got the program, and he looks at it and he says, like, oh my God, you know, they're blathering about fair distribution and kind of rights that you can't have under capitalism. And a good um, state. Oh, yeah, a free. we want to have a free state. And he's like, what do you mean a free state? I don't want a free state. I want people to be free from the state. Uh, and just a couple of years before that, you had the, the, the Paris Commune. And Marx said, look, the Paris Commune only was you know, in existence for a couple of months before it gets crushed. But the, the Paris Commune had a lot of good things that it did. But the most important thing it did was its own working existence. That was its greatest achievement. What, what does that mean? It means here we had really a non-state form of rule. We had the masses in power. And the Paris Commune showed that the masses of people can govern themselves. They didn't manage to, to last long enough to undo you know, capitalist relations, the law of value, and so forth. But in terms of governance, this was a free form of community. It was a non-state form of community. And right after that, something that, that really is always very striking to me, the next year, Marx and Engels publish a, a new edition of uh, the Manifesto of the Communist Party, you know, the Communist Manifesto. And to this day, our day, you got all of these kind of party types, social democrats and so forth, and they're always pointing to, there's this uh, one point in the manifesto, these 10 points of like, here are the immediate things that they say at that point. In, in most countries, this looks like what we're going to need to do immediately. So it's like a kind of a 10-point program. And this is how a lot of people, parties and formations, justify their claim to be socialist and Marxist. They're you know trying to put into place you know some aspect of those, those 10 points. And in 1872, Marx and Engels say, we wouldn't put any emphasis on that today if we were rewriting it. I mean, it's, it's, it's there, but it's history. Because what the Paris Commune showed more than anything is that the proletariat can't just take over the ready-made state machinery and wield it for its own purposes. In other words, the state is not neutral. The state must be smashed or, or, or broken. Okay? And that's what the, the Paris Commune proved on the ground in real life. So Marx, unlike a lot of people, became more anti-statist rather than less anti-statist. So what does this have to do with liberal democracy and so forth? Well, liberal democracies protect the rights of individuals against the state. Okay? They protect the rights of individuals against the state. So it's freedom for the individuals and less freedom for the state. The state has less wherewithal, less ability to push people around. Now, that's true only to a limited extent. It's not the new society that, that we are fighting for, that Marx was fighting for. It's, it's not at the level of even the Paris Commune, but it's something to be defended against the Trumpites, Orban, Modi, Putin, uh, Bolsonaro, Xi, all, all the rest of those people. And you could say we got democracy, democratic people's republic of uh, Korea. But if you don't have rights of individuals, it doesn't mean anything. Now, Andrew, you quote Marx saying that rights cannot be higher than the economic structure of a society. But I think people have taken that as justification of uh, economic determinism that says it's not, even, it's not even worth it to talk about civil rights and liberties and freedoms in this society. And I know uh, that's not what, you're, what you mean. 
Can you tell us something about how you're using that phrase? Well, what I was trying to do was to situate that phrase in context, the critique of the Gotha program, and to use that whole discussion of Marx to show, first of all, that what he was arguing when he's arguing against, you know, the so-called fair distribution, and he says, look, we got the present-day capitalist society, we need to look at what communist society would be right after it replaces capitalism, and how there's still limitations uh, at that point, and the ultimate goal of society in which we have from each according to their ability to each according to their needs, that's much further off in the distant future. And he says, why is this? It's because right, and the the German word is not as limited as the the English. Basically, the, the term could be used to refer to justice, rights, law, okay? All of this can never be higher than the economic structure of society, he says. So what he's trying to do is to say, you got this party program that you're trying to establish here, agree on and have, you know, running elections on that. And it's calling for fair distribution, all of this stuff that's just not achievable within capitalism. Okay, that doesn't mean that nothing is achievable within capitalism. I mean, Marx is very clear about that. You had democracies and you had armed despotisms. I mean, he, he could tell the difference between one and the other, and he was in favor of the, the, the democratic things, much more in favor of moving in that direction, totally against the armed despotisms. So there are certain things that capitalist societies cannot achieve in terms of individual rights and freedoms, but certain things they can. But in terms of fundamental economic rights to part of society's product, capitalism is very limited in that way. The first phase of communist society is going to be better in, in that way, but even then, there's still going to be not a condition where we could have from each according to their ability, each according to their needs. What I'm tr- in, in, in the piece, what I'm trying to point out is look at the focus of Marx's discussion, very famous discussion. What is it really about? It's about individual rights, individual freedoms, the ability of the law to guarantee and to protect those, the extent to which that is possible. And what Marx is saying is, this is the goal, but it cannot be achieved in one fell swoop. We need social revolution, we need economic transformation, along with that. All of this is needed to move forward, and it doesn't happen in, in one fell swoop. So the, the, the point is, people oftentimes don't think that the essence of Marxism is individual rights and freedoms. But if you look at the critique of the Gotha program right there, where he's talking about the entire expanse of human history from now until we could reach from each according to their ability to each according to their need in the higher phase of communism, that entire discussion is about the development of human rights and human freedoms and what that's going to take. Yes, I think this essay is most profoundly a critique of the American left anyway, probably all the left, that's a soft on authoritarianism and Trumpism, especially through its critique and its insistence that neoliberalism rather than authoritarianism is the main enemy we face. MHI is talks continuously about authoritarianism being the main enemy. I think this whole issue has an immediate effect today on the support or lack of support for voting rights issues, which are crucial to uh, the future of the country, to stopping authoritarian control from taking over, and for everything else that is able to happen and the fact that black people have for decades struggled for voting rights and are still doing so and are still in the forefront the self-appointed left says well it's not a real movement it's not a mass movement but it is massive it just doesn't take the form they recognize of people in the streets all the time 
and um, they tend to denigrate it. They tend to have disdain for liberal uh, democracy rather than to see that these movements for voting rights by black and other minority people are essential. Uh, Well, that's the pragmatic reason, (laughs) essential to moving the movement towards revolution forward and are very good for the self-development of those movements. There's a discussion in the paper about Engels and Marx's position on chartism. When this article you wrote was for a presentation, and there was some reading for the presentation, you asked people to read things by Marx and Engels on the chartist movement. Why was that important? What does that have to do with this topic? Chartism has everything to do with rights, individual rights, because it's the Chartist movement was specifically for suffrage, the right to vote. And that is just the cutting edge of struggle in the United States at this time. There were bills uh, put forward in the Senate, I think last week, it seems like a long time ago, and they were meant to protect voting rights. And they were defeated because they got no support from either the Republicans or the Republican wing of the Democratic Party. Uh, you know, Cinemansion, the, the the closure filibuster issue didn't get support from the Republican wing of the Democratic Party. So could well be losing the right to vote in the United States. It's been uh, on a downhill for close to a decade ever since the Supreme Court got rid of the requirement that the historically racist states needed to pre-clear their, their voting procedures. Uh, it's a huge issue. As always, the black people are in the forefront of the struggle. This is not a new struggle. It goes back to, in this country, goes back to the suffragist movement, uh, voting rights for women. Before that, you had the struggle for the suffrage for the newly freed, you know, formerly enslaved people. So, you know, even after the Emancipation Proclamation and the defeat of the Confederacy, they still didn't have voting rights for all people. But this was a huge issue in, in Britain in Marx and Engels' day. So chartism refers to the struggle for a charter, and the struggle for a charter was a struggle for voting rights. Now, not only were Marx and Engels in favor of this, they were so much in favor of this. I mean, they participated. Marx, you know, attended like a Chartist rally, and he wrote it up for one of our local papers here in New York, you know, in a famous article. But I was struck by like Engels, you know, he's reporting later in life, you know, reflecting back on the history of the Communist League. And in like one phrase, he refers to communism among the French and Germans and chartism among the English. He was putting chartism, this struggle for voting rights, on the exact same level as the communist movement in France and Germany. Even though it was only a struggle, only a struggle, you know, for voting rights and and it had no uh, other obvious economic content. And Engels also recounted that he was at the time, kind of alone in this, you know, he had to like really argue with the the other colleagues, his other communist colleagues, on the importance of the, the Chartist movement. You know, it's the continental chauvinism. They think that they've got all the knowledge and the sophistication. The reason it was not obvious to those people on the continent was that Chartism was hugely important and cutting edge struggle was that it was not about anything economic. I really recommend everybody read Marx's uh, article on the Chartists. And it's like really amazing because like the the, the workers had the right to a consultative vote. So they're they're all for this Chartist candidate. And by the voice vote of this consultative vote of the workers, he's the guy, they want him elected. And then the people who really have the vote, the the landowners, they take that under consultation and say, you know, no, the hell with you, we're going to put in our, our people. Uh, it, it, it's really, really interesting article. But at one point he says, just look at what the Chartists' demands are. He says they contain nothing but the demand of universal suffrage. 
and of the conditions without which universal suffrage would be illusory for the working class. So suffrage and some guarantees of suffrage. Just a purely voting rights struggle. You know, Marx made no bones about that. But if you would hear like Jacobin or some of these people today, that they would be using that to, to disrespect the movement. Well, you're not saying what you're for. It's just voting rights. You're a neoliberal show. But right then when, he, when Marx says this, it's just about universal suffrage. He says universal suffrage in England would be a far more socialistic measure than anything which has been honored with that name on the continent. So there you go, right? So how could Marx say that universal suffrage would be far more socialistic than, you know, socialist measures? Because his goal was not any economic content per se. That was a means to an end. The end is human freedom. The end is the rights and the full development of each individual. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course to share with all your friends and enemies. 